That's my grandson. <laughs> well, as most of you know, I am passionate about the Scriptures. I want to know what the Bible says and what it means by what it says. And that passion is what drives me to spend a lot of hours every week locked away in a study wrestling with the text each week. I want to know what it says. And I want to know what it means by what it says because it is in and through the Word of God that the Spirit of God brings brings us into contact with our Creator. This is where we will know Him. This is how we will know Him. It is through the Scriptures that we will find everything necessary for life and godliness. So I'm committed to the Word. And I've been here long enough at Foothill doing this for long enough that I guess if you're still here, you must be committed to it too. So as we study these Scriptures together through the book of Romans, we are confronted with some amazing truths. Amazing truths. You know, as we examine the Scriptures together, there's a question that we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis. We need to ask ourselves, how does this particular passage lying before us fit into the overall context? How does it fit into the message of the chapter in which it's located? How does it fit into the, into the book in which it's located? How does it fit into the testament, new or old, in which it's located? And how does it fit into the message of the Scriptures as a whole? We need to be able to ask and answer that question. If we're to rightly understand what it is God has written to us. I am also persuaded that many of the problems in evangelicalism can be traced to preachers who spend too little time wrestling with the Scriptures, whose days are occupied with other endeavors, some of which are quite noble, yet they do not rise to the level of being able to touch the heart of men and women. The only way to reach down inside and to make real change is for the Spirit of God to do it using the Word of God. Open your Bibles to Romans 8. We're moving into a new section now in this epistle. Romans 8. Someone said to me this morning they've been really anxiously waiting for us to get here to chapter 8. And indeed, this is a this is a high watermark in this epistle. There's no question about it. This is rich, rich feeding ground. And so we're going to go through it together over some number of weeks and see if we can't understand what the Apostle Paul has to say for us. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, by the way, open to page 1131, you'll arrive at Romans 8. The Bible promises eternal life 
through the person who is righteous by the grace of God through faith in Christ. But it's not just life eternally out there somewhere. It's life here and now. Life, eternal life is a possession in the here and now. And it is a life that is characterized by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. In fact, the word spirit or pneuma is key to understanding this chapter 8 in Romans. The word appears in the first seven chapters of Romans, Romans 1 through 7, only five times. And in chapters 9 through 16, it appears eight times. But here in chapter 8 of Romans, the word pneuma, spirit, appears 21 times. It is the highest density of the use of this word anywhere in the New Testament. Right here in this chapter of this book. This is about the Spirit. And so as we begin to unpack this chapter together, we are going to learn a lot about the ministry and role of the Spirit of God in the life of His people. But let's ask ourselves that bigger question as we enter into this chapter, and that is how does this chapter and its concentration on the Spirit fit into the general flow of the book of Romans? Let's place this chapter before we begin to dissect it. And so to do that, I want to just remind you of kind of a big overview of the book of Romans. We've gone over this a couple of times, but this is the 54th message we preached on the book of Romans. So for some of you, you weren't even here when we began this book. And for others of you, you can't remember what you had for breakfast yesterday, much less what we preached about months ago here in the book of Romans. So it's profitable for all of us to take an overview of this book. So let me do that with you. The book of Romans can be broken down in a number of different ways, but this is the way that we have chosen to do it. Romans 1.18 through chapter 3 and verse 20 can be summarized in the word condemnation. Condemnation. There in that section of the epistle, Paul establishes the universal sinfulness and helplessness of humanity. As a trial lawyer, he takes each and every person before the bar of God's justice, tries them and finds them wanting. And thus the universal judgment is condemnation. It comes on all. Paul then turns, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3, Romans 3.21 through chapter 5 and verse 12, the end of the chapter. And the word there that we could put over that whole section is justification. Justification. That is, that God has provided a remedy for sin through the atoning sacrifice of His own Son. And that remedy is only available to us by grace through faith alone. Justification. The third big section of this epistle begins in chapter 6 and verse 1 and runs all the way through the end of chapter 8, verse 39. And the word you could put over that would be sanctification. Sanctification. The justified person, the message of this section is, is not only freed from sin's penalty, but he is freed from sin's power as well. 
Justification frees us from the penalty, but built into it is the freedom as well from the power of sin called sanctification. And sanctification, this freedom from the power of sin, is activated by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, not by law-keeping. It is through the indwelling Spirit, and thus I guess you can see a little bit of where chapter 8 is going to go. The next section of the epistle begins in chapter 9, verse 1, runs all the way through chapter 11, verse 36. The big idea there is restoration. Restoration. And what Paul picks up and addresses there, and, and really in a sense it's, it's a, a detour in the message, but it's a necessary detour, is the question of Israel. The end of chapter 8, we have an incredible promise there that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so the obvious question is, what about Israel? Israel had the promise of God to them, and yet they have fallen. They have failed. So has God failed is the big question. Did God make a promise to them that He failed to keep? Because the answer to that obviously would have ramifications for us. The final section of this epistle, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, running through chapter 15, verse 13, is the word transformation. Transformation. And what this section is, is a statement or a series of statements really about the life of the Spirit. What does it look like when the Holy Spirit lives in us? What will He produce among us in terms of lifestyle? And so chapters 12, 13, 14, and the first half of chapter 15 talk about specifics of life in the Spirit. What does it look like? So that's the basic overview and flow of the book of Romans. Now, back just momentarily or so here to chapters 6, 7, 8 on sanctification. And let me just zero in a little closer and show you how that fits together, because this will give us our boundaries of interpretation as we begin to pick apart this chapter. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, speak about our union with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. We are in spiritual union with Him. And because we are in spiritual union with Him, His crucifixion becomes our crucifixion. And thus, His death is our death, His resurrection is our resurrection, and that means the power and bondage of sin has been broken in our lives. That's the message, chapter 6, 1 to 13. It's a powerful message. Powerful message. The conclusion of that is verse 14. And go ahead and look back there if you're not already. Chapter 6, verse 14, because it's a key verse. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Summary statement. What Paul's saying is that as a believer, we have changed masters. We have, we have changed realms, if you will. It means we have been delivered from the old age into the new age. And we have been delivered from the power of the old age, which is the law, and delivered into the new age and its power, grace. And so this, this contrast of old age and new age, old power and new power, old realm, new realm, hope you like it, is, is forcefully brought forward here and will be the underlying thread that will continue to be brought up over and over again. 
through chapter 6, 7, and 8. Really, verses 15, chapter 6, 15 through verse 23 is a, is a bit of a side trip that Paul believed was necessary because of such a strong statement he made in verse 14 about not being under law anymore. And so he takes this side trip to, to pick up that question and to begin, begin to answer it. And, and basically what he talks about there is the two competing ages, the old age and the new age, and their end product, which is eternal life and eternal death. And so when he gets to chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, he's back to the same theme of verse 14, that is deliverance from the law. And again, verse 6 speaks of it there as serving in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. He's back to the same theme again. You've been transferred from an old realm in which the law reigned into the new age, the new realm in which grace reigns. Beginning in verse 7 and running all the way through verse 25 of chapter 7 is another side trip. Another side trip that is brought on. And in this, I believe, and I've tried to present to you over the last few weeks, He's taking up the case of Israel again and the failure there of the law with regard to the nation of Israel to either restrain sin before or after conversion. And so he speaks of the law's impotence, its inability to restrain the sin of both the unbeliever and the believer. That sets the context of us moving into chapter 8 where Paul will now explain to us that the real power to live the new age life, to live in the new realm to which you have been transferred, the real power to overcome indwelling sin is the Spirit of God. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And thus, 21 times in this chapter, he will use the word spirit. So chapter 8 is about life in the Spirit. Now, the goal, let me just again, sort of preliminarily speaking here, the goal of sanctification is Christ-likeness. Romans 8, verse 29, For he whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed or changed into the image of His Son. What God is doing in your life, if you know Christ by faith today, is that He is working diligently to make you like Jesus Christ. That's His goal. That's His mission. That is what He has predestined for you before the foundation of the earth is to make you like Christ. And He's going to succeed. And the means by which He succeeds, the power by which He succeeds in that, in that, uh, in that changing process is His indwelling Holy Spirit within you. He's going to make you like Christ. And as you become like Christ, you will love one another. You will love one another. Remember John 13, verse 35. The world will know you are My disciples by your what? By your love for one another. So to being conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ is to be made a lover of the brethren. John, in his first epistle, 1 John, hammers that away. If you do not love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? So it is love 
that He is after in us. He is to turn us into lovers. That takes us to the text, Romans 8. Let's look at the first four verses together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Stop there. In this section before us, just these four verses, we're going to see a threefold freedom. A threefold freedom resulting from the Spirit's ministry in our lives as believers so that we will love one another. So that we will love one another. Let's look together at that first aspect. Number one, verse one, we are freed from the law's condemnation. We are freed from the law's condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a glorious verse. This is an emphatic verse. This is the most comforting verse in terms of news that a person could hear. Because the condemnation that Paul established earlier in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is heavy and inescapable. And it, like a prize fighter cutting off the ring from the other fighter, it inevitably backs you into the corner from which you have no escape. But Paul says here, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Therefore, points us backwards. It's a conclusionary word. It says that because of what's gone before, we need to draw a conclusion. What has gone before, as I have pointed out to you, is Paul's statement back in chapter 6, verse 14. Again, I'm persuaded is a key verse to unlocking this whole section, and that is that Sin shall no longer be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Law brings condemnation. And Paul says, since you are no longer under law, but under grace, therefore there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. And that's good news. That's good news. Now, he says, now, it's, it's not a reference to something that has happened between Verse 25 of chapter 7 and verse 1 of chapter 8. It's not like Paul got saved or something between these two chapters. What he is speaking of is that now that the new age has come, now that you are a member of the new realm, the new age of salvation history has been inaugurated by the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. Now that that has come and you are a member of it, there is no condemnation any longer. For the law brought condemnation. The law is impotent. 
the law is impotent. Paul demonstrated that in chapter 7. In fact, the law is not only impotent to restrain sin, it, it is misused by sin and creates an opportunity or a beachhead from which sin can operate. But Paul says we're not under that condemnation any longer. We're not under it any longer because we have been taken out from it by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. Now, this word condemnation appears in uh, Romans only here and in two other places in chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. The word condemnation. And it, the word speaks of, of uh, a verdict or a sentence upon a guilty person. But it goes beyond just the verdict. It, it goes all the way to the penalty phase, that which the verdict demands. Condemnation sweeps up the idea of being declared guilty and being punished for the guilt that you deserve. Chapter 6, verse 23, the penalty of the, of the verdict for, for those who are still under the law is death. The wages of sin is death. But the amazing thing, Paul says here, is that we have escaped that sentence, that verdict, that condemnation. We have escaped it. Death is no longer the outcome of our life. That is the outcome of the life who, of a man who lives in the old realm, a man who is under the old age, a man who, in whom lo, uh, the law continues to condemn him. His ultimate destiny is eternal death, but ours is eternal life in Christ Jesus. See, that's the key. The key to this is in Christ Jesus. You see that verse 1. To be in Christ is to be vitally united with Him. The message of chapter 6. It's, it's to be part of His body, the church. It's to fully partake of the benefits of His atoning sacrifice. And as we shall see here soon, it is to be indwelt by His Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be in Christ over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says that those who are in Christ are new creations. We have been created anew in the new realm. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says there that those who are in Christ have been assured their first place in the resurrection of the body. They have been guaranteed that the dead in Christ shall rise first and have un hindered access to God the Father through Jesus the Son. So to be in Christ is to be a partaker or a benefit of all that Christ has purchased with His cross work for us. It is to be justified before God to have all of our sin forgiven. That means that condemnation is impossible. Not for old sin, not for present sin, not for sins yet committed, nor for original sin. It has all been atoned for by Jesus Christ. To be in Christ means that we are free from the condemnation of the law. Second aspect of freedom that Paul 
begins to unfold for us here is in verses 2 and 3. Where he says we are freed from sin's power. We are not only freed from the law's condemnation, but we are freed from sin's power. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This verse, really, verse 2, supplies the the reason for the assurance of verse 1. It describes what the Holy Spirit has done in the life of the believer. This expression, spirit of life, could be translated life-giving spirit. That's the idea behind it. And it's a clear reference in context to the Holy Spirit. And it speaks of what He has done for those who are in Christ. Look again at the verse. He has set us free. He has set us free. Now, in describing the the means for that freedom, Paul uses the word law. Do you see it in the verse? It's used twice. The law of the life-giving spirit, the law of sin and death. And so he uses this word law to characterize both situations. Now, what is he talking about when he says law here? What does he mean by that word? Well, it is not a reference to the Mosaic Law. We'll just begin with that. It's not a reference to the Mosaic Law. And the reason it's not a, a reference to the Mosaic Law, where it says the law of the life-giving Spirit, can't be speaking of the Mosaic Law because in the next verse it specifically says that the Mosaic Law is impotent to do what verse 2 says it does. So whatever the law is, it cannot be the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law does not free us from sin. It provides a beachhead, an opportunity for sin to ravage us. So it's not talking about that. So what is it talking about? I think it's speaking about law in a more general sense. The idea of an authority or a power or principle. It's used that way, by the way, over in chapter 3, verse 27. Paul speaks there about a law of faith. A law of faith. And so I think it's the same kind of idea that he's Speaking of here, he's speaking about authority. He's speaking about power. He's speaking about a principle. And what he's contrasting in this verse, verse 2, for the authority of the life-giving Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the authority of sin and death. I think that would be a nice way to look at it. He's contrasting these two powers, these two authorities, sin and death versus the life-giving Spirit. Maybe I can illustrate it for you this way. This law of sin and death, this authority, this power of sin and death is like the law of gravity. Like the law of gravity. It keeps our feet firmly planted on the earth, right? But consider the case of a jet fighter. Here's a jet fighter, about 16 tons of material sitting on a flight deck of an aircraft carrier. It's not going anywhere. And in fact, if you were to push it to the side of the aircraft carrier and over, it would plunge into the ocean and rapidly sink. It is bound to the deck. It's not going anywhere. But if it's animated with 36,000 pounds of thrust, given a 0 to 150 mile an hour catapult ride in about two seconds, all of a sudden it is airborne. It overcomes the power, the authority of gravity. It soars and roars off into the sky 
it's a majestic thing to see. The gravity never ceases, but it is overcome. It's overcome. And, and that's the way it is for a believer. We are animated by the life-giving Spirit. So the power, the authority of sin in our members, it continues to exist as long as we live. But in Christ Jesus, it is overcome by the life-giving Spirit. His power, His authority brought to bear on our lives overcomes this competing authority, the power and control of sin. That's the message that Paul says. This is good news. This is good news. Not only have you been relieved from the condemnation that the law brought to you, but you have been given the power and authority to overcome the gravity of sin in your life. Paul goes on, verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. This is an explanation verse. You notice it begins with the word for, gar in the Greek. could be translated because. This speaks about, the, it's the explanation of why the Spirit is able to set the believer free. Why is it the Spirit can do this? Can set us free from the power, the authority of sin and death? The answer in the verse is because of what Jesus Christ has done. Do you see it? What the law could never do, Paul says, God did. God did. And how did He do it? He did it by sending His own Son. The law was impotent. It could not justify. It cannot sanctify. It cannot acquit us from sin. It cannot keep us from sin. It is weak. The powerful, entrenched pull of sin cannot be overcome. Even by God's good law. And we can never resist its pull if we're only relying on law. But God overcame this desperate situation by sending His own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Galatians 4.4 4 says that at the precise moment in human affairs, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman born under the law, that He might redeem those under the law. God sent forth His Son. God the Father sent forth God the Son, second person of the triune Godhead, into space and time to fully participate in the human condition. That's what it means when it says in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, He took to Himself human flesh and then offered Himself as a perfect atoning sacrifice for His people. An offering for sin. And by one decisive act, He condemned sin in the flesh. You see it verse 3? He condemned sin in the flesh. He pronounced judgment upon it. He declared it worthy of punishment. That's what it means to condemn. But see, with God, unlike a human court, God goes all the way. When God declares it to be wickedness, God includes the punishment with the verdict. And so God, when it says here that in His Son He condemned sin in the flesh, that is, He overthrew it, He punished it, He broke its back. 
And he did it on the cross. When God offered up his own son to be crucified on that cross, he not only declared sin wicked, but he conquered it. He conquered it. He made it forfeit its dominion over his children. God condemned it in the flesh. Beloved, that means indwelling sin is a defeated foe. It is a defeated foe. It can no longer accuse or rule over you unless you let it, unless you surrender. But you have been delivered. You are free. The Spirit of God Almighty, third person of the triune Godhead, resides within you and His power is available to you all the time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 to 57, Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's still going to be a fight. This triumphal note shouldn't hide the fact that there's an ongoing hand-to-hand combat. It's a fight. It's a daily fight. Sin is a defeated foe, but it has not been exterminated. It is still powerful and it is still wicked. And it still wants to kill you. And so you must engage in this fight. It is a life of struggle. There are ups and downs. There are advances and setbacks. But there's still, look at verse 1 again, no condemnation for you in this. And in that you rejoice. All of your failures, all of your sin, all of the wickedness of your life, past, present, and future, all heaped upon Jesus Christ and atoned for fully, completely there. Colossians says that, it, that he, the, 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 the paper that, that listed all of our offenses was nailed to the cross. That was easy for you to say. It's gone. It's gone. No condemnation. None. It's been paid for by Christ's atoning sacrifice applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit of God. And that takes us to the third aspect of this freedom. Freed from the law's condemnation. Freed from sin's power. And finally, freed to love one another. Verse 4. Freed to change, beloved. That's what we're talking about. We have been freed to change. Because before Christ, we are self-lovers. What pleases us is what it's all about. After Christ, we are lovers of each other. We are freed to love one another. Look, verse 4, purpose clause. In order that. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk or do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has overcome the condemnation of sin, the power and authority of sin in your flesh. He has broken its absolute rule so that you might fulfill the requirement of the law. 
You have been set free for a purpose. Verse two, right? Christ has set or the spirit of God in Christ Jesus has set you free for a purpose. Verse four, the purpose is to fulfill the requirement of the law. And the means by which we do that, the means by which we live out that freedom is to no longer walk in the flesh, but walk in the spirit. No longer to walk in the flesh, but to walk in the spirit. End of verse four. This expression to walk means how we conduct our lives. That's basically what it's talking about. It's the course of your life. If you are walking after the flesh or according to the flesh, then you, your life is characterized by a habitual and prevailing wickedness that governs your inclinations, your thoughts, your desires. It means your values, your, your goals have been, are determined by this world system, this fallen, wicked world system in rebellion against God. That's what animates you. That's what motivates you. That is what characterizes your life. It's walking after the flesh. But we walk, verse 4, according to the Spirit. Do you see it? We walk according to the Spirit. We don't walk that way anymore. Ephesians 2, we used to walk that way, but now we walk this way. We're citizens of a new realm. We're possessing the indwelling Spirit of God. We walk in a new way. We walk according to the Spirit. That is, we live under His control. We live according to His values. We live according to the values of the new age. We're governed by His Word. We're motivated and empowered by His holy desires. That's what characterizes our life. With the high cost of gasoline, it seems everybody these days is talking about alternative energy sources and in particular alternative means of transportation, right? And so people are beginning to talk about different ways to do this and two possibilities that are beginning to be talked about are um, battery cars and electric trains. The merits of, a, of an electric car driven by you know, battery packs or public transportation, the electric train. And the difference between uh, the battery car and the electric train, um, I'm going to use as an illustration of, of what it means to walk in the Spirit. So hang with me on this one. A battery car operates by the principle of storing electricity in a battery, right? It stores it up. And then as you need it, you, you, uh, it, it comes to bear on the motor and drives the car. But an electric train operates on the principle of constant contact. The train's power is derived constantly by its contact with the overhead power line or the third rail, right? As long as the electric train is in contact with the energy source, it continues to move. That kind of illustrates what it means to, to walk according to the Spirit. We are not storing up grace. You don't have a grace battery in you somewhere in which you can can store up grace through reading God's Word, you know, and, and uh, participating in worship and, and uh, partaking of communion and all of the, the various means of grace that are talked about. You can't just do that one day a week and store it all up. And then Monday through Saturday, you know, you use it all up and you come back here Sunday morning and we fill you back up again. It's a happy thought, but it's not true. We walk in the Spirit like the electric train 
when we stay in constant contact with the third rail. That is, we are constantly taking in from the Spirit of God. He is the source of all power in life. And so as you walk in constant contact with Him, and you do that by reading His Word, just reading His Word daily, you know, I'll say to somebody, do you, you know, do you have regular times in the Word? And they say, yes. And then if I'm being mean, I say, what does that mean? Is that like three times a week? What is regular for you? How often do you eat physically? I like three squares a day plus a little on the top, right? Full <laughs> ice cream before I go to bed. So we need to be in contact with the Word of God on that regular kind of basis. We need to, we need to read it. We need to take it in. We need to meditate on it. We need to speak to our Father through Jesus, the Son. We need to have a regular and consistent time in which we talk to God. We need to be obeying His impulses towards holiness in our lives. Not resisting them. Walk according to the Spirit. We fulfill the requirement of the law. Let's talk about this just a minute as I close. What is this requirement of the law? What's Paul talking about here? We'll come back to this again. But just as an overview, what is he talking about? Notice he says requirement singular. Do you see that? In order that the requirement, not requirements of the law might be fulfilled. Singular requirement. What is the singular requirement of the law? I'm glad you asked that question. So if you go over to Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, Paul gives us some help. Paul says, Romans 13, verse 8, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. When we walk in the Spirit, we love one another and thus fulfill the law of God. What does it look like to be walking in the Spirit? How does that play out? Well, after Paul's detour in Romans 9, 10, and 11, you come to chapter 12. And in chapters 12, 13, 14, and the first half of chapter 15, a life characterized by transformation. You remember I said that? That is what characterizes one filled in with the Spirit and walking according to that Spirit and fulfilling the law of love. If you want to know what it looks like to love, graze in those chapters. Start reading and meditating upon those chapters and then you will know what it means. Beloved, if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, there is no condemnation for you. There's no better news that you can hear. Conversely, if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, if you are here and you have not personally embraced Him by faith, if you have not confessed to Him your sin, 
acknowledge before Him that you have violated His law, that you are justly condemned, that you deserve eternal punishment. And beseeched Him, asked Him, begged of Him, called out to Him to save you. And by faith, embracing the sacrifice He has provided in Jesus Christ, if you have not done those things, you have not exercised saving faith, then you remain under condemnation. And the opposite of Romans 8.1 is true for you. You are condemned. I beseech you this morning to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. As we finish our time together, we're going to have a time of communion and, and then singing. But as we finish that time, there will be some folks over here near this lighted cross. It's a perfect illustration of what you need to do. You need to go to the cross. And there you will find Christ. You come and there will be folks there who can sit with you and talk with you and open the Scriptures with you and show you how you can have life everlasting. Let me pray. Our Father, I am overwhelmed when I think about the reality that there is no condemnation now. That Christ Jesus fully drank the cup of Your wrath. Right down to the bottom, not a drop remains. All that I have done, all that I will ever do, all that I am that is offensive to You has been atoned for by Jesus Christ. And not only that, our Father, You have applied that atonement to me through Your indwelling Holy Spirit who has broken the power of sin in my life. I can begin to live as my aspirations desire for Your glory and not mine. Oh, thank You. Thank You for such a glorious salvation. In Jesus' name, Amen. Middle mind of Christ.